in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So let me, let me open with this line. What do you do when you have the chance for vengeance? Think about that. What do you do when you have the chance for vengeance? Remember where we left off last week. Joseph, you know, was this really talented one, the one that his father loved the most. His brothers hated him largely because of that reason. So they sold him into slavery. And after 13 years of slavery and imprisonment in a dungeon in Egypt, he's finally lifted out of that plight, right? He's recognized for the man that he is and with the talents that he has. And he's brought up to be the second most powerful person in Egypt after correctly interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And to be the second most powerful person in Egypt is to be the second most powerful person in the world. But why? We didn't finish that part. We said, well, what was it all for? Genesis gives a bit of a hint as to why he had to go through all of this. Like, why why did he have to go through all that suffering? There's a bit of a hint. Uh, Genesis 41, 54 and following says that the famine also struck all the surrounding countries, but throughout Egypt there was plenty of food. Eventually, however, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. And people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. So it's giving us this hint, you know, 250 miles to the north, Joseph's brothers are now beginning to starve. And all of those brothers' wives and children are beginning to starve. And if Joseph had lived this calm and peaceful life there, he would not have had this in. He would not have been in Egypt, and they likely all would have starved to death in this famine. And so we're starting to get a sense for why Joseph was allowed to go through all of this pain. In chapter 42, Genesis 42, it starts, When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. So Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them, for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's son arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Now remember who was in charge of storing and dispersing all the food in Egypt. That was Joseph. So since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, the Bible says it continues in verse 6, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. So in the first week of the story, if you were with us in the park, Joseph dreamed a dream. It was uh, back from chapter 37. He says, listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered round and bowed low before mine. And of course, all the others get really angry. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And a few days later, they see him coming and they say, hey, here comes the dreamer. Why don't we kill him? And Reuben's like, don't kill him. Just dump him in this cistern here. And then he thinks, you know, we'll come back and get him later. Um, But while Reuben was off, they sold him to slave traders instead for 20 pieces of silver, which reminds us of the story of Jesus. I won't get into that. Uh, But he sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And it was that dream more than anything that brought this about. 
Um, and 13 years later, these brothers that sold him into slavery have no food. They and their families are looking ahead at starvation. And so they go to Egypt to buy grain. They meet this Egyptian governor and who, you know, speaking in Coptic in the Egyptian language and with that hair and with the, you know, the, the age, they don't even recognize him as their brother. And over the issue of grain, it says they bow down before him asking for grain. So Joseph remembered his dream then. It's absolutely coming true. Here is the one who has the most grain in the world, right? The tallest bundle of grain and the, one who had, the ones who have no grain, the, low, the small bundles, are all bowing down. I mean, imagine, what would you do in that situation? You're the second most powerful person in the world. This, all these dreams are coming to fruition. What would you do? Now, I tell you what many would do. I tell you what a Hollywood script would do. He'd go all vigilante, right? Count of Monte Cristo, Batman, I mean, you name it. He would bind them up. He would throw them in dungeons. You know, you ruined me. The prime of my life, ages 17 to 30, were stolen from me. You made me a slave. Well, guess what? Here you thought you were just going to starve. Now I'll keep you locked up in a dungeon while your families starve. Like, that's what the world tells us, right? That's what a Hollywood script would do with this scene. It's sort of like the, uh, you know, when others treat you poorly, then, you know, karma comes back around. That's kind of the, the message that you hear a lot of times. But after 13 years in slavery, Joseph's not going to do that. He has other plans. But not yet. <laughs> I think Augustine has this famous prayer. He says, oh, Lord, make me a chaste man, but not yet. Uh, which is, I get a kick out of it. So Joseph's going to do the right thing, but he's got some other things to accomplish along the way. He wants to know more about the family. So he kind of messes with them, playing on known stereotypes. The Bible says that he speaks with his brothers through an, an interpreter. Now, of course, he can understand everything perfectly that's being, um, but they don't recognize him. They think he's this Egyptian. So in order to play the part, he speaks to them in Egyptian, in Coptic, through an interpreter, even though he can still hear them and, and understand what they're saying. So he's yelling at them in Coptic, like, you're spies. And they're like, what? No, no, we're not spies. He's like, you're coming to spy out the land to see how much the famine has ruined us. You know, you're trying to steal the grain from the storehouses instead of buying it. And you want to see what the defenses are. He's, he kind of runs them through the gauntlet on these accusations. Um, and this maybe wouldn't be too surprising to them. Uh, the Egyptians had words for Hebrews and Canaanites. Uh, and <laughs> if you look in the history, not many times do they address them as Hebrews or Canaanites, they almost always address them as sand dwellers or throat slitters, which I get a big kick out of. Um, these terms are actually still in use today all over the world to stereotype people who are herdsmen and who live in dry or desert areas, you know, sand dweller or throat slitter, because there's these ruthless, hard people that live in the desert. And so, uh, you know, they knew that there was this hard relationship between the two groups and to be yelled at like this maybe wasn't too much of a surprise. Uh, let me break the story just for a second and, and ask, why Egypt? So why did the famine come later and less severely to Egypt? And a lot of people, when they read this, they just think, well, the only reason they have grain is because of what God told Joseph, right? To store a fifth of the grain for seven years, and that way they'd have enough to make it through the famine. And remember, during a famine, it's not that zero food grows, it's just that a lot less grows than normal. So they had all this stored up. Uh, but what people don't often ask is, why did they have so much extra to store all those years in the first place? Why was there such a bounty of crops for seven years that they could store a whole fifth of it and be just fine? Was that a miracle too? 
And it wasn't actually, that was just normal Egyptian life, normal Egyptian abundance. So the ancient world was really scarce. Food was hard to come by. There were famines and droughts. Devastating things came through every 10 or 15 years. It was a really hard time to live. And you really had nothing you could be sure about, except in one place, and that was Egypt. They were fed by the Nile River. It's the largest river in the old world. And it wasn't a river that was fed by the crazy you know, weather patterns of the Middle East. It was fed 4,000 miles south in, by Lake Victoria, which is you know, in the sub-Saharan African mountains. And so every single year, I mean, the Egyptians thought it was a mystery because no one had ever gotten to the southern extent, at least from Egypt. No one had made it down there. So they didn't know where the Nile even started. They're just like, this magical source of water just keeps us going. And every single year, it was the most dependable thing in the ancient world, that river flooded. Um, and that brought all these nutrient-rich waters from sub-Saharan Africa into the middle of the desert. If you do that, maybe you make a note to do this later. If you look at a satellite image of Egypt, it's fascinating, uh, you will see sandy yellow as far as the eye can see for hundreds or even thousands of miles in either direction. Except for this one spot, there's this nice, beautiful, deep patch of green right where the Nile fans into its delta. So there's a few hundred miles of just beautiful, lush green and that's where Cairo was, that's where the Pharaoh was, and where Egypt was. And so the Nile was the surest thing. And so it wasn't random to go to Egypt during famine, and it wasn't just a once-off. Like, I heard that there was grain in Egypt you know, this time. That's uh, what the ancient world always did. For thousands of years, when famine happened, everyone went to Egypt to try to buy grain to stay alive. And now here these men come, the, the, the brothers, and they're bowing before Joseph just as he dreamed. But Joseph's not going to do to them what they would deserve, but he's not ready to reveal who he is yet. So where we leave off, he's accusing them and berating them in in Coptic. And they're like, no, 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 we promise. There's 12 of us. Uh, One of our brothers is no longer with us, and that's Joseph. Uh, And the youngest was left at home because he's now daddy's favorite, and his brother died a long time ago. And, you know, he couldn't bear to lose that one too. So we're the 10 of the 12. We're all sons of one man and we're starving. So we came here to buy grain. And now Joseph knows what his plan is. Uh, He knows something that they don't. And he knows that the famine is only just beginning. It might only be a year or two or three in. And he knows that they've got seven total years to go through. So in order to keep his brothers from starving, he wants them close, close to him and close to those storehouses. But he needs to get them all where he is first but he's not ready to reveal who he is yet. So he begins this ruse. He calls them liars and spies again. And then he says he'll test them. He puts them all in prison. So here's this human element coming out here. He puts them all in prison and makes them sweat for about three days. He he wants them to endure at least some of what he endured. And then uh, he says he'll send one of them back to get this youngest brother, Benjamin, to test whether or not they're, they're telling the truth about how many of them they are. Uh, you know, to sort of carry out this ruse that they're not spies. But then in a sort of good cop, bad cop routine, he actually says, well, instead of holding all of you, you know, I know that one person couldn't bring enough grain back to keep all your families from starving. So I'll let you all go back except for one. But you keep one of you here. And so he keeps Simeon, who is the second, um, the second oldest brother uh, from, um, from Leah. So he keeps him there in prison, and then he sends all the others back to Jacob to go fetch Benjamin and bring him back. Uh, He wants Benjamin because of all of his other brothers, Benjamin is his only full brother. The others are all half-brothers. Joseph and Benjamin have a really close connection. They're both children of Rachel. They have the same mother. 
So he wants Benjamin with him. So speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben said, but you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. I love this verse. Um, this is, as far as the Bible story goes, this is where we'll cut the, the story for today, and other, otherwise we get into the next plot points. Um, but I, I, I imagine this, that here they are, sort of showing regret, showing repentance. Clearly, they, they're not happy about what they did to Joseph so long ago there, and he begins to weep, and he tries to hide it from his brothers. So for 13 years, he didn't know how his brothers felt about what they'd done. He's, you know, he might have been sitting in that dungeon wondering, were they like, yeah, baby, 20 pieces of silver for that dreamer? Uh, you know, did they think it was worth it? Did they regret it? And to hear it spoken in front of him in his mother tongue that he maybe hasn't heard in more than a decade, um, that one had tried to save him. He didn't know that before, that Reuben had tried to save him. Uh, and to see that they were all repentant and feeling like they were getting what they deserved for what they'd done, this is the first time he knows that they regret their action, and it's too much for him. A person who was overcome by their hard heart might have thrown them in the dungeon the first moment they saw them, or taken the ringleader and done awful things to him, or made an example out of him in some way, but Joseph doesn't. And because he doesn't, he's able to hear or overhear this dialogue. So if he would have done what the world often encourages us to, right, which is to take vengeance. He wouldn't have ever heard this attitude, this repentant attitude. But because he's already showing mercy and plans to show even more mercy, that's why he's given some closure here. And if all he was about was vengeance, he, he, you know, he would have killed them long before, and he would have gone on to be a very unhappy man, and he would have carried that unhappiness to the grave. But already, this is fascinating, already his wounds are beginning to heal, and it's, it's long before it's even over. He hasn't revealed himself yet. He hasn't fully you know, forgiven or had this reconciliation with them. But his wounds are beginning to heal just because he's planning to do this, just because he's planning to show mercy and do the right thing. And this has me thinking about us. You know, who has wronged us? Who has wronged you? And how long have you held on to it? And what kind of poison is that creating in your heart? Do you really want to bring that to the grave? If you showed mercy and showed forgiveness, it would begin to heal. And even if you just made the plan to forgive those things, not even maybe if you haven't even gotten around to having this reconciliative you know, talk with someone yet, if you've even made the plan to show mercy and forgive, you start to heal in that moment. But he's not done yet. He still has some intrigue he's about to pull and he's, uh, he still has some plans that he needs to pull off here. Um, so at times in your life, we'll, we'll stop there for the Bible story. He'll, they'll go back and they'll get Benjamin, and then the, the plot gets even deeper. Uh, but again, because of the, uh, the kids in the service with us and this being our first time back, I thought maybe not a 35 or 40-minute sermon this first time. I'll, I'll do it a little shorter. So at times in your life and career, you will be treated like Joseph was at 17. Maybe a more modern variety of it, not being sold into slavery, but you might be treated about as poorly as you've ever been treated in your life. But the tables do turn. You know, the human lifespan is long, and you will win, you will, sorry, you will, I'm seeing my notes ahead, you will live long enough to see winners become losers and losers become winners, 
and you will live long enough to see the new thing in town become the despised one and then back again. If you keep your head down and keep working hard, you will find yourself in a position someday to have the chance to utterly destroy someone who has wronged you before, whether in your career, whether in your family and relationships, you will, if you keep your head down and keep working, you will have the chance to ruin someone who has treated you poorly before. But what are you going to do with that? Will you play this vigilante? Will you play this, uh, I think of the Shakespeare's term, the, the poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage or however that goes. Uh, you know, just all these mindless, angry people full of sound and fury, just carrying out their little petty vengeances. Will you do that? Or will you take a higher road like Joseph, like Jesus, and forgive? Will you show mercy? Joseph has learned the better path, and he shows mercy instead of condemnation. And his mercy led not only to a happy life for him and his family. I mean, he was able to save them all from famine, which is amazing. But it also let the Jewish, it started the Jewish people off on a course. They were 70, which we'll get to at the end of this whole story. But there were 70, and they grew into a group of more than a million Later, they'd flee to Egypt on their way to the promised land. And from them, Jesus would come who would show mercy to the whole world. And so when those who've wronged you, when those who've ghosted you or who've mistreated you come around and their fate is now in your hands, what will you do? What road do you take? Do you follow the path of Jesus, of Joseph, or do you celebrate in vengeance and in ruining them now that the power and the upper hand is yours? Uh, let me pray. I'll end here. It's, it's not the most natural ending point, but otherwise we get into this long plot that comes ahead and there's really no breaking point. It's like, you know how sometimes you see those signs that say, you know, next rest stop, like 170 miles ahead. So it's kind of like stop now. Otherwise there's really no break for a while. That's where this is in the Bible. So I'm like, well, this isn't exactly a conclusion, but we're going to stop here for this week and then we'll continue and hopefully finish the story next week or the week after. Uh, so let me, let me pray for us. Lord, I think everyone here has probably faced this, at least everyone who's older than a teenager, where someone has, uh, has, has ruined them or has um, done something terrible to them. And Lord, we know that if we live long enough, if we, if we work hard, oftentimes we'll see those tables turn and that very person's fate will be in our hands five or 10 years later in that career or that job or relationship, whatever it might be. And Lord, I know that we will face these, these chances where we could be petty, we could be uh, vigilantes, we could be a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye person, or we could show mercy and show forgiveness and follow the path of Joseph here and of Jesus. And I pray for the strength to look toward mercy and toward forgiveness. It's not easy and it's not appealing in the moment like, um, like vengeance is, but it leads to a better walk with you, it leads to health, it leads to happiness, uh, and it's the way that you put in front of us. We thank you for this example of Joseph and of Jesus much later, and we pray that uh, you would conform us into your image in this way, that you'd help us to not judge, that we not be judged, and to offer mercy and forgiveness. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and lift these prayers up in your name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.